Hello, fellow Blue Earther. Welcome to another podcast. I'm Laura Nesbitt, and on today's pod, I'm chatting to brewer Zav Baker, who makes up one half of the duo behind Mermaid Gin, made by the Isle of Wight Distillery. They were the first company to bring to life a compostable, tamper-proof drinks bottle seal, which has now been used more than 10 million times within the spirit trade. Zav is also taking part in the Talisker Whiskey Challenge, rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, fundraising for several environmental charities. So you are the official Blue Earth sponsor, well, Blue Earth sponsor slash gym partner. How did that come about and what are you doing with Blue Earth Summit this year? I suppose our partnership came together with working with the the, the Wavelength uh, crew, which... um, been a huge fan of the Wavelength magazine ever since I was a teenager over the years, being a surfer and water user and things, and then just sort of watching what you're, you were all doing. Then hearing about the Blue Earth Summit, which I wanted to attend last year, which I did attend, but then looking at all the talks that were going on, I thought, there's no way I can attend all of them. So we ended up bringing a crew of uh, five of us up from the island to attend so we could all go and see each talk and then have a sort of a catch up on the whole event. And then, yeah, so last year we did support with some gin and tonics just for some uh, refreshments as well. So since you left college, you have been involved in this industry. How did you make the choice to step into such an interesting career? Yeah, at uh, age of 17, uh, I was doing science at college here, here on the island. And I was also, uh, did all my beach lifeguard training qualifications. And uh, I was actually all set to go to Australia, live the dream, beach lifeguard. Um, <laughs> and then an opportunity came up at a local brewery to be a trainee brewer um, at 17. So I thought, well, yeah, that's a good opportunity. Let's give that a go. And to be honest, I've had a lucky path uh, with mentors over the years, uh, with master brewers, learning, I suppose, from master brewers with the Institute of Brewers and Distillers. And so, yeah, it's pretty cool to be um, commercially brewing and not legally allowed to drink alcohol as well. So uh, it's uh, and it's been, yeah, been a good path from there on, really experimenting, making lots of mistakes, learning from them. But then, yeah, been in the trade ever since. So is um, brewing is the same across all types of alcohol? It is that there are variations. So ultimately, I suppose you're taking a a sugar source uh, medium and then using a yeast to ferment the sugar into alcohol, giving off CO2 as a byproduct. And so with the the beer side of things, yeah, that's something I've done since 17, as I was saying. But it's great because it it ties you into the it's, it's a natural process fermentation um, but also brings you closer to nature I suppose working with uh, the farmers you know for the barley understanding soil conditions sunlight rainfall um, same with hops as well then yeast working with a single cell organism then quality of water then time temperature uh, for your fermentations and how long is the process from start to finish yeah so I suppose on the beer side of things it's about a four days brewing a week's fermentation you can lager a product um, so that could be up to a month lagering at zero degrees uh, with a certain amount of pressure of, of CO2 for carbonation. But yeah, in theory, within two to four weeks, you could be brewing to uh, to drinking. And then on, on the distilling side of things, we, we, we use a, a grain neutral spirit. So the highest quality grain neutral spirit we can get hold of. For our gin, we did try and um, look at doing the fermentation and then the distilling to create our ethanol based or grain neutral spirit. But we figured we'd bring in a consistent blank canvas that then we could add our botanicals to. And then it's time, temperature, distillation uh, from, from there on. 
why do you have to have a license to do this? And why is Mermaid Gin the only brewery that is allowed to do it? <laughs> Where you are anyway. A couple of things there. So um, thanks for it. So um, I suppose we are a distillery. Um, I'm, I'm a brewer by trade and they've written, recently learned distilling. But no, no, that's probably me confusing things. So um, yeah, so we are a distillery. With uh, distilling, certainly more, more than brewing, uh, you've got a, a high revenue, uh, duty on, on the product. So on a bottle of gin, so a bottle of mermaid, £8.45 goes to the government on, uh, on, on duty. So it's a high value duty product. So there's a lot of securities. Absolutely every drop that we produce bottle here is recorded and we have regular visits from HMRC. So for, for the licenses, A, to make sure that you're know what you're doing. Uh, the security in place, you're measuring everything accurately. Um, so it's hard to get the licenses. And certainly when we started, there were only a handful of distilleries around the country. So we were one of the earlier ones to get a license. It took us over six months. I think now they're rattling them through in about 45 days. It's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and so you guys are the only one on the on the Isle of Wight? We are. Uh, it's something we're hugely proud of. So Conrad, my partner in the distillery, he's a, he's a winemaker of 35 years. And that's sort of how the two of us came to be. We've been friends for years. Always talk about fermentations, temperatures, filtering, bottling, all that exciting stuff. Then we said, yeah, it'd be great one day to get a distillery underway. And so when we got the distillery underway, we applied for the license for HMRC. So that took a, a good while. But then we were trying to look into the archives of history here on the island. Like, is there any other distilleries here? Was there ever any moonshining done back in the day by monks or anything else? Being here on the island, uh, certainly on the back of the white, uh, it's renowned for smuggling. And soon found that there was no reason to distill it over here or do any distilling over here because why, why bother when you can just uh, rob it and wreck it? So, um, so being an island full of smugglers, just rob, rob, the, rob the rum and the brandy, don't bother making it. <laughs> and we are still the, um, the first and only distiller on the island, which we are, we are proud to be sort of, yeah, taking that path. I hope you have um, weaved that story into your marketing somehow, because that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, we haven't yet, actually. Yeah, we're, I'm always up for a bit of smuggling, so I might have to bring that back in at some point. <laughs> so I'm really interested to know how you manage to choose the flavours of the island and how, you know, how you get those tastes across. Again, coming from the brewing background, sort of your recipe formulation and having that vision of what, what your end product is going to be, look like taste, aroma, strength, mouthfeel, appearance. So with the gin, uh, we wanted to have a smooth, easy drinking, sessionable gin, but something that sort of reflected a bit of the character and captured some essence of, of the Isle of Wight. So I'd brewed a beer years ago with rock samphire that grows just above the high tide line. And so going through the, the process of looking at how to bring the flavours together, thought the rock samphire would be a great key botanical to our gin. So it grows, it's, it's different to marsh samphire. So marsh samphire actually is submersed under the water and looks like, like a small asparagus. The rock samphire uh, grows just above the high tide line at the base of the cliffs on, on the rocks, full of vitamin C, member of the carrot family. But when you chew it, you've got this sort of slight saltiness, a bit of a lime, zesty, almost carroty note to it as well. So, um, which we later found out his nickname is actually Mermaid's Kiss which um, found it afterwards. <laughs> but it's quite a nice tie-in to uh, you know, the, the, the name and it's sort of, uh, meant to be, I suppose. So um, we use fresh lemon zest, which gives it a vibrant uh, citrusy note. We use a small amount of hops uh, grown on the, at the Botanical Gardens in Ventnor. And the, the Botanical Gardens is set in a little microclimate in Ventnor on the south side of the island, slightly southeast facing, so it's protected from the, the prevailing southwesterlies. And as it's on a hill, 
just got its own little microclimate there. And they've had flowers flower that have no, never flowered in the Northern Hemisphere before. So it's quite a cool place to visit if anybody's on the island. But they've got a small hop garden just on the cliff edge. And they're the closest hops grown to the sea in the country, which is pretty cool. So we use a small amount of Bodicea um, hops. And that's probably being a brewer as well. Just have a little nod to, to brewing. Coriander seeds that are grown over in, um, in Sussex. They're the, the first only commercially grown coriander seeds in the country. A lot of the other botanicals we have had to source uh, from overseas because they're not grown in the country. Grains of paradise and juniper berries and things. We use a father and son company, Beacon Commodities, Tommy and Michael, um, and they're great. And they actually go and visit all of the farmers around the world to make sure they're ethically sourced, fairly traded, good quality. Um, so we put a lot of faith in them to source our botanicals. Yeah, and then sort of bringing it all together, really. So um wanted the gin to not be too complex. So we have 10 botanicals in there, which we didn't say, right, let's choose 10. Just that's how it worked out to be. So it's um a nice, smooth, easy drinking. You get the vibrant citrus note in there. A bit of spice from the Grains of Paradise, um, which a great name anyway, Grains of Paradise. And then you get that that hint of sea air from the, from the rock samphire as well. Nice. And I'm just watching your face as you explained all of that. And there's definitely a sparkle in your eyes. So I can, <laughs> I can tell that it still excites you after all these years. <laughs> it, it does. I thought I might try and wind it back and I don't carry on too long in this. Okay. <laughs> no, it's so nice when people are passionate about things. Um, so what's been the most interesting lesson that you have learned from, um, you know, being in brewing and distilling? It's a very friendly, sociable trade. So it comes naturally because it involves, involves drinking. But even still, it's very friendly. You know, people are very open to sharing problems they've had with production, suppliers, all sorts of things. So it's a very, very open trade, which is, which is great. Also, it seems to be full of good people as well. And certainly, you know, with us here at Distillery, we're hugely fortunate to have a great team. Everybody, you know, works very well with each other. We share all the knowledge, the good, the bad, the ups and downs, the learning curves and things. That's really nice to hear. Um, so talk to me about Mermaid Atlantic, because apparently you are planning on rowing across the Atlantic in the uh, Talisker Whiskey Challenge. So uh, myself and two friends, Paul Berry and Chris Mannion, Manny, three of us are taking part in the yeah, Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge in 2023, which will be leaving in December. Isn't that going to be a bit chilly in December? Luckily, where we're, we're, t- we're setting off from Lagomera in the Canaries across to Antigua in the Caribbean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a bit warmer down there. So um, setting off from, from, from here in December would be horrendous. So uh, the, the idea by leaving in December is that you get across before the hurricane season starts. That's the plan. So it's 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Hopefully Mother Nature is going to uh, look kindly upon us. But so we're early stages of A, learning to row, and also on the sponsorship journey at the moment as well, trying to raise raise funds so we can secure a boat and actually seriously get, get training, uh, do some rows around the island, across the channel, down to Studland Bay, and just, yeah, generally get used to being seasick, having the sores and uh, and doing it. But it's, uh, it's a great journey so far. We're supporting the Surface Against Sewage, everybody will be familiar with, uh, and then they're lobbying against the, the, the government on... Uh, the, the effluent that's been poured into our waterways by the water companies and, um, you know, we all enjoy the water. So supporting them. Uh, and they've been great on, on board with us as well. The Seahorse Trust, which is, um, set up by chap Neil Garrick, which is based down Studland Bay in Paul. So they've got the seagrass meadows in Paul, which is a great breeding ground for seahorses. So they're doing a lot of work on trying to protect the, the habitat there. And they've created eco moorings. 
So the eco moorings are sort of drilled into the, the, the seabed and then they're floating ropes to come up to buoys. So rather than boats coming up anchoring, ploughing the seabed and ripping up all the seagrass, they're putting these eco moorings. So they're trying to raise money and awareness for using the eco moorings and also let people know water users about the seagrass meadows and where to anchor and just maybe more 20 yards further out away from the seagrass. Um, and then also the Hampshire Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust, who we work with closely for the distillery anyway. Again, on the seagrass meadows we've got off here on the island, which I'm pointing out the window, uh, we've got Sea View Bay and we've got the longest seagrass meadow in Europe, which runs from Osborne Bay uh, down to Benbridge Ledge. So we've uh, got some marine champions here at the distillery that work with the Hampshire Isle of Wildlife Trust to go down and monitor the seagrass on the big spring tides at low tide. And also we've been planting uh, here with the trust as well. And the results have just come through last month where they've actually, the seeds have taken and the seagrass is actually sprouting and uh, it, it's all working. So um, it's a great thing to be supporting the, the trust with the seagrass as a whole, really. I think if, as it's become more and more aware to people now how important it is for sequestering CO2 and sinking CO2, as well as it being vital for habitats as well. What are kind of like biological or environmental threats to seagrass? One of them is on, on the marine leisure use, people mooring the boats off in the bays and putting the anchors over the side. And people don't realise this thing. So part of what we're trying to do is just let people know and aware that there are seagrass meadows out there and, and where to moor. And people like Navico are trying to put it on their GPS chart plotters where the seagrass meadows are. So when you are coming to various bays and creeks and things, you can see where the seagrass meadows are. So be mindful where, where you moor. And also there's effluent from, from farming, from the land as well, hitting the, the, the sea where the, the seagrass grows quite close in. That can affect the, um, the longevity of well, the, the seagrass as a whole. There was a disease that came through the Solent back in the 30s, uh, which wiped out 90% of our seagrass. So it's still coming back, but there's a lot of work to be done. And also like, working with the fishermen as well. But, you know, that's their livelihood. Um, so let's try and work with them to understand the significance of seagrass and just try and work with them, which is a good response is that the fishermen are keen and on board to learn and understand more because ultimately it's a habitat, a breeding ground for cuttlefish, seahorse, not that we eat seahorses, but, <laughs> um, you know, bass and you know, shellfish and things. So, um, so, you know, their livelihood is involved in this as well. You know, we all like to eat local seafood and things. So, um, so they're on, on board trying to understand more as well. So um, there's a lot of work going on and um, yeah, exciting times. It's really nice to hear you um, talk quite in depth about each of the charities that you're supporting. It says a lot about the emotional investment that you're making by, you know, doing this challenge. How much are you um, hoping to raise? As a total for the for the expedition, we're looking for for to actually do the the the, the adventure or the crossing uh, about hundred hundred and twenty thousand. And then for each of the charities, as much as possible, really. So on, on the Mermaid Atlantic website, you can go straight through to each charity to donate endless, really, just as, as much awareness and, and funds as we can. One of the things we're hoping, as briefly touched on, we're hoping that once we get the boat, we can row around to Studland uh, Bay, use one of the eco moorings, have a night on the eco mooring, and just yeah, generate some interest and some content and throw that out on social media and just let people know what eco moorings are about. So your training... Is anyone training you? Have you got a plan? Is it going well? Yeah, of course we have. Yeah. How hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's fair to say we're easing ourselves into the training. 
We started in January, Newport Rowing Club here on the Isle of Wight took us under their wing with a coach, uh, Matt Wishaw, and he um, sat us down, pretty serious talks about, about learning to row, the techniques and things. So we get the basics now, and now it's just the case of fine-tuning the techniques. Paul Berry, he's rowed since he was five, but he's rowed in a hard-seat, clinker-built boat. So it's like teaching old dog new tricks for Paul to actually learn in, in a, a, a sliding seat. But yeah, we're getting there. We've got a couple of coastal boats, so we're off uh, the south side of the island uh, when the weather's good, getting up and down the coast just to do some training. Yeah, we're easing ourselves into it. But one of the things that we're also mindful of and we're hearing from other people we're talking to that have been across is there's physical, but then it's, it's the, the, the mental training you've got to prepare for. They're saying, you know, there's three of you on board, but actually you're on your own quite a lot. And you hit some pretty dark places. So it's something that we're Bauer Media supporting us as well. And one of the things they're trying to work on, they've had some male suicides during COVID within their company. So they're trying to use a phrase, where's your head at? And trying to generate awareness and openness for midlife males to just be open and talk more, which um, we tend not to, you know, I'm fine. I'm all right. I can handle it. I can deal with it. We actually just be a bit more open, open about things. So something we're going to try and use as we go across and, and try and document from now right the way to when we do get across the other side, you know, and dealing with post-adventure blues as well, is, you know, where's your head at? They're real, by the way. They are really real post-adventure blues. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't experienced it yet. So I'm trying to, again, prepare for this and what can we do to try and, you know, deal with it. But I think it's something we're going to very much use that phrase, you know, where's your head at? You know, how are you getting on? You know, you know if, if you're in a bad place today, just flag it up, Look, lads, not in a good place today. Keep an eye out for me. And also just try and work on understanding each other as well. So like, you know, how do you deal if you're in a bad place? Do you need to punch in your arm, pull yourself together, or do you need a hug or what what works for you as an individual? So uh, they're the sort of things we're starting to go through now. And um and um, Manny kicked off with a, a download of it on, onto a, um, a video to us, which was, um, it was deep, really, really deep. And, um, he opened up a lot. So it's, um, he sort of set the ball rolling for us, really. So, um, so a lot, a lot of preparation and, um, yeah, we're getting there. And have you found what works for you yet? Are you kind of a tough love or do you need a hug, a belly rub and somebody to hold your hand? Yeah, I reckon I'd go for a hug, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) Followed by a dead arm and pull yourself together. (laughs) Well, you know, you might find on the day that what you thought might work doesn't actually work. (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah. So talking about Blue Earth Summit, what is your blue thread? So I think from us sort of, Personally, here in distillery, being on an island, we are surrounded by water. Um, so whatever you do, you can't avoid it. Um, and I think certainly for us like growing up here as well, you know, it's noticeable the, the, the plastic that's washed ashore, the pollution, the effluent, but it actually has improved. I remember years ago, you'd be out surfing and you'd be sat there and like things would be floating by. You think, geez, you know, you don't see that now. It's probably disguised and macerated now but um you, you certainly are aware of the the, the quality of the sea, the sea and what's washed up on the shores here and things being a water user um all the time and being mermaid gin it's something that is very close to our hearts me personally and everybody here at the distillery so if we can try and use what we're doing as mermaid gin through our socials and our content what we try and do just try and spread spread the word and the importance of looking after the sea, being mindful of how you act, throwing litter, pick things up, how you just treat the environment around you. If we can use our supporters, consumers, to try and just sort of um, work with them on that journey, that's something that, um, yeah, we're hugely passionate to do. 
And how has um, sustainability affected your business in the last couple of years? Or the concept of sustainability, because I think everybody is is sort of more aware of it, but actually, from a business perspective, it can be quite hard to implement. Yeah, it's something that from day one, really, both Conrad and I are very much. I mean, Conrad, he, he's got head of the curve. He's got all the solar panels, the batteries. You know, his whole house is charged up, recharges his car up, his car charges his house up, vice versa, and he's got that with that sort of engineering mind as well. Um, so we're both passionate. That's something that we want to, you know, through the company as we set up to be mindful of, of, of the environment and things. But 18 months after we launched Mermaid Gin, we launched it in a, in a standard off the shelf bottle. And then we went through a long process of rebranding to, to take ourselves further. And so we pulled a dream team around the table of designers, bottle manufacturers, closure manufacturer, uh, and, and the team here. And so there were 12 of us sat around the table. Before we did intros, I just gave everybody a bamboo toothbrush. <laughs> there we are, just passed it around to everybody. And they were like, what? <laughs> what, what? What are you on about? What's this? And it was just like, right, before we start this process, can we just try and right the way through, just be mindful of the impact on the environment, be sustainable, compostable, biodegradable, plastic-free, just during this whole process, which everybody took on board, we did succeed, but it created a whole host of barriers for us on, on the journey. We had some exciting ideas come out of it on the journey. Um, so with the closure manufacturer, uh, Rankins, we were talking about collecting plastic from the beaches and having that remolded into the, the stoppers for the bottle. And he went away and came back and said, yeah, physically we can actually do that, but we can't use sort of waste products in a food product. So that, that was the idea out the window, which would have been pretty cool because it would have made bes- you know, unique bespoke stoppers for every bottle so then we went through the whole process of creating a plastic free bottle people say well how hard can it be it's a glass bottle but you know on the labels they're not plastic coated the tamper proof seal we worked for eight months with viscos creating a corn starch corn and potato starch tamper proof capsule that was compostable so we were delighted that we were the first to bring that to life and now that's i think they've sold 10 million of them maybe over that now, uh, within the spirits trade as tamper-proof seals. So stoked about that. And I think that's something that's cool that that means there's 10 million not plastic tamper-proof seals being produced. And that was a great journey. And we know we'd be transparent on our journey as well and try and let as many people know to go and use those guys for the, the tamper-proof seals. Your bottles, by the way, are absolutely beautiful. Oh, cool. Thank you. It, it was. And we wanted to, we took everything into consideration from the bartenders there was swing formulas because we found with the previous bottle, some bartenders found it a bit heavy. And when you're pouring all night long, there wasn't a, a swing balance formula in there. I didn't know that formula existed, but apparently it does. So that's that. that so so that so that has been brought into the whole sort of, you know design away to the bottle and everything else. You know, so you can get two fingers under the neck for for pouring bits and pieces. Fits in the bottle cooler, uh, wine cooler, sorry. But also having it tactile as well. And the colours, we wanted it to represent the the, the sea. Um, I'd like to say the sea of the, the south of the island, but more the Mediterranean sea. That's sort of like turquoisey blue. But also then with something that people would want to keep rather than just dispose of it, recycle it, actually use it for something. And we're overwhelmed by how people have been chopping them in half, making vessels, candle holders, light, um, lampshade bases and putting lights in them, putting candles, flowers. It's great when you go to a bar or a pub hotel, they've got them on the tables and things. It's um, it, it's perfect. And that's what we wanted with them. And we were um, delighted to hear last October 
a report came out from eBay that apparently we were the highest value empty bottle being sold on eBay. Average price £11.96, which was mind-blowing, but also it was like happy days because that was the objective of when we set the brief for making a bottle in the first place. So, um, yeah, delighted with that one. Did eBay send you that or did you go hunting for it? No, it, it, it was um, published in, in the papers and we, we picked it up in, in, in the papers. It's like, oh, how cool. I think we the Mermaid Pink was number one, Tanqueray was number two, and then Mermaid Blue was number three. So it's like, boom, so delighted. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. The sustainability side of things, it still is it's a huge journey. And, you know, we've tried to do the best we can. You know, we are growing at a, at a great rate, which is brilliant, but that has impact on everything. So, you know, working with the... The Hampshire Island Wildlife Trust, you know, is, is trying to put something back and we did offset our carbon footprint. We are tracking our carbon footprint emissions every month with everything we do. But then trying to work on the, with the science-based targets on actually set our targets and goals to actually become net zero by 2030 and what we can do and change working with our suppliers, trying to get our suppliers on board you know, and we've had some in-depth conversation with our suppliers, like, you know, come on, if they're not making an effort, make an effort because we really want to be working with people that are on board, like-minded, you know, with their packaging, transport, operate as a company. So wanting to work with the right people, and we are, um, but it's something, again, we're just trying to make show the importance to us as a company, to our suppliers, which a lot of them are on board. Some have got a bit of a way to go, and we've said to them, look, you know, you need to really get up to speed or, um, you know, we will be looking elsewhere. It's new territory for everybody and uh, there's no guidebook to how to operate as a business. Fortunately, we are growing, but but no guidebook how to operate as a business of how your sustainability goals, targets and everything else. So a lot of learning curves going on and we've got Charity here who looks after sustainability and compliance. She's done so much reading and we're working with good business, good citizen to try and sort of hold our hand and walk us through this process of um, how we can be most sustainable to, to everything really but it uh we've got some yeah but it's even like our website trying to keep our website updated on our sustainability pages you know what what we are doing and the impacts we are making so it's um it's a really difficult one but we're 100 on it and we've got a long way to go do you feel like it's quite hard being on this sustainability journey to be transparent because you're saying that you know you're, you're struggling with your suppliers and you know how do you communicate that to your customer to say hey we're doing everything that we can but we're not quite there yet yeah there's something that very much we're, we're at at the moment and we're working on that um is, is to be we want to be transparent to, to everybody customers staff suppliers and everybody and that is something that we are working at the moment is to just throw that out, out a bit more you know we thought we were going down a great road by being carbon neutral and we thought to the same extent we were even net zero but actually, we're not, uh, and that's something that we're working on now to, to move forward. But it, it's a journey, you know. We're, we're we've got good hearts, good people, we're trying to do the right thing. It's just trying to find that right course of action through through the. Um, th- there's a lot of, I suppose, greenwashing going on as well. You know, you try and buy renewable energy from one of the suppliers, you find that actually, when you look further and dig deeper, it's not quite as renewable as you think. So um, it's a tough one, but yeah, transparency is key, and we're keen to talk to anybody any other company that is having the same troubles you know we could learn from them and vice versa learn from us as well so um yeah 100 percent. and talking about journey we're halfway through 2022 and what are you most looking forward to for the rest of the year personally i'm loving the heat at the moment absolutely love the warmth so i want summer to just carry on (laughs) 
a couple more cheeky waves would be nice as well, to be honest. And I think as, as a company, it's exciting for us. We had the uh, Spring Classic a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely brilliant. The weather was incredible. Being down in Willacombe, again, great like-minded people, some great conversations and good fun to be had all around. So that, that was really great. We've just had Alawite Festival, which has been good fun as well. And then we've got Cows Week coming up, big sailing regatta in end of July. Um, and they've got all sorts of events. So it's quite a full on time for us just being here, then everywhere, really. But yeah, ultimately just enjoying the weather. And then we, yeah, Blue Earth Summit coming up in, in October there, which we're all looking forward to getting more involved uh, and supporting, but also listening to the talks as well, because, um, last year came away hugely inspired with so many ideas of all sorts, really way to approach business, life, all sorts. So, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're doing a sterling job on that and, um, yeah, glad to be a part of it. Well, it's been lovely to have you on the pod. Thank you very much. And I hope that you do enjoy a gin this evening watching the sunset. Laura, will do. And thank you ever so much. And look forward to having a gin and tonic with you soon. (laughs) Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.org.